before David comes to bring us our reading this morning, just a little background to this 16th chapter of Exodus that we're looking at. In this chapter, we have the second of three episodes that make up this section of the story. The people of Israel are making their way through the wilderness, and they're guided by God's own presence. You remember there was that pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that was leading them. And they're being instructed by God's servant, Moses. As we read the passage, let's, let's bear in mind that the people of God have seen miracles already. They've seen what God has done to free them from the hand of Pharaoh and those mighty gods of Egypt. God's already provided them with fresh water at that place called Mara, where they, where they met with bitter water that they weren't able to drink. And he also, at the end of the last passage, at the end of chapter 15, he'd given them this oasis of fresh spring water and trees called Elam. And they didn't even ask for that. But God blessed them with this oasis in the desert. But here in chapter 16 people of God begin to grumble again. They've been grumbling already through the story, and here they grumble again. This time they grumble because they don't have enough food to eat. Now remember that there are perhaps a million people on the move here, and they're in this wilderness place where these people who had formerly been settled in towns and cities couldn't find any food. They didn't recognize anything in this wilderness to eat. They have cattle with them, but they're probably reluctant to slaughter and eat their cattle. Cattle in those days weren't for everyday eating. Cattle were for accruing wealth and for sacrificing to God. And meat, red meat, the meat of sheep and cows was only eaten on special occasions. Now, in the story, in response to their grumbling, God does another miracle, a really well-known miracle. He rains down a substance called manna from heaven. And this manna they will eat like bread for 40 years going forward in the wilderness. In the story, they're also given quail that come to settle on the camp. But at this point, that doesn't seem to be a permanent thing. God gives them the quail for that day, but probably not in days to come. There's another story that happens at the end of Numbers, the book of Numbers, well, in the middle of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, where they're given so much quail that they get sick of it. But that happens after they've been to Mount Sinai, where they're heading at the moment. And that's a story for another time. But in the meantime, let's hear the story that we find in Exodus chapter 16. Do 
Just an additional word of explanation before I begin. Uh, towards the end of the passage, you'll hear reference to something called an omer, which I'd never heard of. Uh, an omer is a measure of weight, and it's about the equivalent of 1.6 kilos, 3.5 pounds in old money, about the same as three packets of porridge oats. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard you grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, 
They gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Amen. Let's pray together as we turn to reflect on God's word. Lord, like the children of Israel in the desert, we need a glimpse of your glory. A glimpse of that glory that helps us to see the bigger picture. A glimpse of your glory that helps us to see that we're part of something bigger than just ourselves, that you have a plan to redeem the whole world. With this glimpse, help us to carry on and follow you. Come, Holy Spirit, now and reveal yourself through this, your word that lays open before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The thing that stands out in all three episodes in this section of Exodus is the grumbling of the people of God. The word grumbling or grumble appears seven times in this chapter. And this grumbling happens often throughout the whole of the journey out of Egypt to the promised land. This incident, however, is a prime example of the grumbling of the people. 
So let's look at the complaint of the people as it's described in the third verse. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What a telling statement about what's on the heart of these people. A statement that's full of hyperbole. It's full of exaggeration and and downright falsehood. After all they've been through, the, the Israelites really think that God was so cruel as to want them to die at his hand, as it says here. After all they've been through and seen of Yahweh, Did they think that he was in the business of torturing them by starving them to death in the desert? And did they really have it so well in Egypt? There may have been the occasional pots of meat in Egypt. But did they really spend all their time sitting around those pots of meat? Are they forgetting how cruel their life was in Egypt? How hard their labor was. Have they forgotten about the babies that were thrown into the Nile River? Have they forgotten about having to make bricks without straw or that army of chariots that was bearing down upon them armed to the teeth on the shores of the Red Sea? This complaint here in verse 3 is so Far from the truth. But it seems to be their way. This is the way they roll. Whenever the people come up against an obstacle throughout this whole journey, they misrepresent God on the one hand, and they look at their life in Egypt with rose colored spectacles on the other. I think that their complaint here is indicative of the of the fact that. Their problem wasn't just that they have been slaves in Egypt. It's not just that they were in Egypt, but that Egypt was in them, as I've said several times before. Egypt was in them. And it stands to reason that after 400 years exiled in the most powerful nation state of the then known world, These people had come to be shaped by Egypt. They'd come to be shaped by Egypt's culture, its language, its religion, and its way of looking at the world. God's intention after getting these folks out of Egypt was to get Egypt out of them. What God wanted to do was truly liberate these folks and to give them a new identity as his own people, as his own people with a purpose and a plan to help liberate and redeem the whole world. But in order for this process of getting Egypt out of the people to happen, people needed one thing. They needed self-awareness. 
You see, when you're so enmeshed in a way of life, it has an invisible power over you in a way that you don't even notice. As the story progresses, it is as the people of God come up against these various obstacles of having no water, no food, losing their leader up a mountain, coming up against powerful armies, and consequently, consequently of having these obstacles, they enter into complaint and dialogue with God about the obstacles. And through that, they are made aware deep down in themselves of what is really calling the shots. They are made self-aware. That, at least, was God's intention. And that, I think, is what God refers to here in verse 4, where he says that the provision of manna would be a test It's not so much a a, a test by which God can pass or fail these people. And it's not so much a test by which God can know them. God knows them already. He knows them through and through. But it's a test by which they can know themselves. It's a test by which they can come to realize how much they need to change and how much they need God in order to help them change. As they walked with this good and gracious God who is so responsive to their desperate times of need, they will hopefully begin to realize that they do need to change and that they need to trust in him and obey him. And my question for us is, are we any different to the Israelites in this story. We too live in a culture that holds powerful sway on the whole world. It's a culture, although it's been shaped by our Christian heritage, that in so many ways is also antithetical to the ways of God and what he requires of us. Do we imagine that this culture in which we live has no power over us. And in light of various struggles that we recently have come up against, how can we trust in these things completely as we often do? How do we trust in modern technology to prevent and cure every disease? when we have things like coronavirus? How do we trust in our economic systems to keep us secure and to provide for our needs both now and in the future when we're up against this rise in interest rates and cost of living? How do we trust our system of government that it will give us dependable and trustworthy leaders when we have some leaders that we're finding not so trustworthy and not so dependable. And how much do we trust in and swim in the water of individualism and the idea that on our own we can and should do everything? 
when we find that we can't do everything on our own. Now all these things, technology, healthcare, economic, government, and social systems, they're all good and they're all necessary. But they are not 100% trustworthy. Nor are the systems that we have always true. They fail us often. And sometimes I wonder if they haven't taken the place of God in our estimation. For some people in our society, all of the time, and for some of us, some of the time, these things, our culture, seems to be the go-to for our trust. First and foremost, these are the things on which we trust, the economic system, technology, the government. But God seems to be the last and the least thing to which we go for trust. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating throwing out all that we have come to depend on in our culture and in our way of life. But I think we should, however, have two things in order to approach our culture in a healthy way. And those two things are self-awareness and God-awareness. Firstly, we need to be self-aware. And by that I mean to be aware of just how much influence our culture has on us. And to be able and willing to critique it and change it where it needs to be changed. But how are we to do that? How are we to change culture? How are we to change the water in the fish tank while we, the fish, are still swimming in it? And what criteria do we use by which to critique this powerful culture in which we find ourselves? Well, to do that, we need to be God-aware, not just self-aware, but God-aware. The test as we have it in the situations that the Israelites encountered, not only about helping the Israelites to become self-aware, they're also about helping them to become aware of God who is present with them. Look at what the text says. Because of their grumbling and God's response to their grumbling in in this situation there in verse 6, it says, they will know that It was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. And then in verse 7 it says, They will see the glory of the Lord. And verse 8 says, They will know that it was the Lord when he gives them meat to eat in the evening and all the bread they want in the morning. The upshot is that in situations of desperate need like this, like this one in the wilderness of sin that the people at that time faced and the situations in which we find ourselves of desperate need, there are valuable opportunities to 
know the Lord, to know his guidance, to know his glory, and to know his provision. Is it possible that just as it was for the ancient Israelites, that the trials that we go through might be opportunities for God to test us in the same way? Might they be opportunities to help us become more self-aware and also more God-aware? And in the congruence of these two things, of self-awareness and God-awareness, might we find that freedom that we have always longed for, but maybe didn't recognize that we ever needed because we have been captivated in our own Egyptian exile, blinded by a culture that tempts us to depend on everything else apart from God. Now, there's a lot in this chapter that is of interest and is of importance, but our time is limited. And there's one more thing that I feel we shouldn't miss this morning, and that is the whole question of Sabbath. Sabbath, I believe, the text is saying, is actually an antidote to the anxiety that we feel when we come up against circumstances of dire need, like the people met there in the wilderness of sin. And that seems to be, to me, why God gives them the Sabbath here in this story at this particular moment, because it is an antidote to what they're feeling. Now, there's a lot to be said about Sabbath all of which we won't be able to cover. But isn't this that we have here in Exodus 16, this description of the Sabbath, something very curious? This description here is alien, I feel, to our traditional understanding as, of Sabbath as we have it here in Scotland. Traditionally, we see Sabbath as law. It will, of course, become one of the Ten Commandments, but here in chapter 16, it is not law. When we think of law, we think of burden. And certainly the Sabbath, as I hear people here in Scotland talk about it, was at one time in our history a real burden for people and for our society in general. Folks have told me that on Sundays when they were young, they weren't allowed to read anything but the Bible. They told me that they weren't allowed to play on the Sabbath. They had to wear their Sunday clothes and sit in the nice parlor all day long. And somebody even told me that they couldn't even smile on the Sabbath. How sad is that? No, the Sabbath here in our passage is not like that at all. It is not law. This story comes four chapters before the giving of those Ten Commandments. And apart from Genesis 2, this is the only time up until now that Sabbath is mentioned in the Bible. 
the Sabbath here in Exodus and back in Genesis. And indeed, when it comes to being mentioned in the law, it was never meant to be a burden. The Sabbath, as we see it here in Exodus 16, is a blessing. In verse 29, the, the text says as much. God says, bear in mind that I, the Lord, have given you the Sabbath. I have given you the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift. <laughs> it, is, it is given by a gracious God to bless his people. The Sabbath is something to smile about, something that should cause both children and adults to sing and to play and to dance. It points to the Sabbath, points to something deep in the heart of God and in our relationship with God's heart as the apple of his eye. He loves us that much that he gives us a Sabbath. Sabbath here in the story is a response to a, a generous giving God. God has given the people what they need in terms of manna from heaven, and he promises to keep on giving. He will take care of them. They need not be afraid. So on the seventh day, after gathering for six days and being doubly blessed on the sixth day, they can rest. They can rest secure in the fact that God has everything in hand. The Sabbath is a blessing. The Sabbath here and elsewhere in Scripture is more a way of a life based on the character of a loving God than it was ever meant to be prescriptive law or a set of laws. The weekly Sabbath of the people of God is a gift and a discipline. As a discipline, its purpose is to help them to keep remembering the fact that the guiding, glorious, manna-giving God will always provide for them. And this morning, we, we sit in the presence of this same loving God who provided bread from heaven for his people long ago. And this God is still in the business of providing for those who will trust in him. This morning, will you do that? Will you trust in the guiding, glorious, manna-giving God with whatever need or situation you or those whom you love are up against? He can be trusted. And if you know that, but you find it hard to remember, if you find it as hard as I do to make trusting him a way of life Sabbath practice. Will you, with me, make a commitment to finding ways of practicing Sabbath or training our souls to trust? If you are like me and you don't have a clue as to where to begin, 
at practicing biblical Sabbath, can I recommend a book for you? It is John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And the subtitle is How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of a Modern World. This isn't just about Sunday Sabbath. This is about a way of life, of practicing rest and of trusting God with our lives. Perhaps after reading this book, you might want to come together and we can talk about it and share some answers. But for now, let's commit ourselves to exploring the blessed rest that God has gifted to us in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you are the glorious, guiding manna-giving God, that your nature has not changed, but you have revealed even more of who you are to us as time has gone by. And thank you for Jesus, who is the expression, the ultimate expression of your gift-giving for us. Thank you that he has opened your rest to us, that we need not worry in life or in death because of what he has done for us. And so we say to you this morning, we trust you. We pray in Jesus' name.